Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you have not called us into a religion where we have to work to earn our salvation and to please you. I thank you that you've called us into a relationship that you have already opened the door to through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are forgiven. We are saved. We are set free. There's nothing we need to do. Jesus did it all. It is finished. Hallelujah. people said amen amen go ahead and take a seat thank you Aaron well we are continuing uh, today or we're back we took a break for a week but we're back uh, looking at the message series called eyes wide open which is uh, from a book that I've I brought out the end of December, beginning of December, and the book is in three sections, and we did three weeks last month. That was section one. We're going to do three weeks starting today, next Sunday, and the following Sunday on section two of the book, and we've looked at some of the problems that can creep into the Christian faith and, and almost ruin it, taint it. Um, Cause, cause it to like, have a spirit that God didn't intend it to have. Things like legalism and, and um, taking things literally that are figures of speech. And, and uh, we looked at all of those kinds of things and how that, that can damage the holistic faith and spirituality that Jesus came to bring and make us narrow-minded and make us judgmental and so on. And what we're going to look at today and the next couple of weeks are, I mentioned in the very first week that, that not only was I bothered as a Christian and then as a young pastor by four what I called spiritual diseases that can enter into the Christian faith, I was also captivated by two biblical mysteries and as I studied them, I found out that they weren't two. They were actually one and the same thing. The two mysteries were when the Bible talks about the end of an age, what does that mean? And the second mystery was, why are there zodiac symbols and constellations in the Bible? And what I discovered as I studied those, and I didn't, I'm not the first person to discover it. I discovered it by reading other people's books and research and so on, was that in the ancient world, they not only had days and weeks and months and years, but they had something called ages as part of their calendars. And it was connected to, just like days and weeks were connected to the movement of the sun and the moon, and months, of course, the moon maps out a month. Um, so these constellations mapped out ages, and they knew when they were in the end of an age. We're not going to talk about the constellations today. We're going to do that next week. But we're going to talk about this phrase, the end of of the age, because this is what people are talking about when they talk about the end times. Quite often you'll hear two similar phrases, people talking about the end times or the end of days. Those are the kind of two phrases that people use. The Bible never uses those phrases, they are, but those phrases are kind of taken from the phrase the Bible uses. It doesn't say the end times, but it says the end of the age. And then it talks about the last days, which is another expression that it uses to mean the end of the age. So what does this mean, the end of the age? What, what is it talking about? Today, what I'm going to try to do is in one short sermon, I'm going to try to cover two chapters in this book and the entirety of my previous book, Victoria's Eschatology. <laughs> and if I can do that, then I think I deserve a medal at the end of this, okay? So here goes, here goes. I'm called this message today, Jesus' Prophecy, Jesus' Prophecy. 
You know, Jesus gave a number of prophecies, but most of them were to do with himself and what was coming in the future. He predicted his own betrayal by one of the disciples. He, he predicted that all of the disciples would flee. He predicted that he would be arrested by the Jewish leaders, that he would be taken to the Romans, that he would be crucified, dead, and buried for three days in a tomb. And on the third day, he would rise again again from the dead. He predicted all of those kinds of things, and they happened within a very short months and weeks of his prediction. But there's actually only one major prophecy that Jesus gave, and it's in Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and Luke's gospel. Uh, the, the fullest version of it is in Matthew's gospel, and it takes three whole chapters, chapter 23, 24, and 25. So it's a long prophecy. He did give other shorter prophecies, but that was his long one. That is the prophecy of Jesus. Just like Jesus gave lots of sermons, but his famous one is the Sermon on the Mount, which also takes multiple chapters. It is the biggest, longest sermon of Jesus recorded. And this prophecy that Jesus gave to his disciples as he sat on the Mount of Olives um, is the longest prophecy. It is the prophecy of Jesus. And unfortunately, it is one of the most misunderstood and abused passages of Scripture in the Bible. The Bible says that its purpose, the purpose of the Bible is to inspire faith, Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. But so many people use this prophecy of Jesus not to inspire faith, but to inspire fear in people. There is so much fear and doom and gloom based around this prophecy of Jesus. Sometimes that fear and doom and gloom is promoted by Hollywood because they like to release movies based on a few verses, apocalyptic movies, and they'll take a few of these verses from the prophecy of Jesus and rip them right out of context, and then they'll make an apocalyptic movie. But even Christians do it. And if you don't believe me, go on YouTube and ch just type in end times and be prepared for every wackadoodle wingnut in the world out there. And the tragedy is, these people are Christians, and they love God. But then you put on the video, and there they are with wild eyes, talking about the Antichrist and the beast, and oh, da dangerous, there may be trouble ahead, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't inspire faith, and neither does it give us inner peace. And Jesus said, peace I leave with you, peace that the world and all these YouTube end timers cannot take away from you. So we need to be people who look to the future with faith, not with fear. And for other people, it doesn't produce fear, it just produces absolute confusion. So we're going to actually have a look at Jesus' prophecy. Can you put up my next thing? Matthew 24, verse 3. This is a very well-known verse. And it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, so many people read this verse and that they somehow or other presume that this is that what is about to come next, Jesus is talking, is going to be talking about events in our future. And if you look back over the last 150 years since this idea of ripping this these verses out of context became popular. It's only been popular for 150 years or so, all this end time stuff. Um, when, you, when you look at that, you'll find out that nobody ever actually bothers. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? When will what happen? Maybe we should read the two or three verses before this <laughs> to find out what they're talking about. But people just don't bother doing that. They just see this verse, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? I wonder what the end of the age means. That must mean the end of the world. 
And to make matters even worse, there are a couple of very popular English translations of the Bible, a really old one, the King James tr translation, which is probably the most popular English version, and a modern one, the New Living Bible, both of whom incorrectly translate that word age as world. And so it says, and the end of the world. So people read that and think, well, this must be about the end of the world. But even with those two Bibles, those two English translations, it'll have a little number beside that, beside the word world, and you'll look down at the footnote and it will say, the original Greek manuscripts say end of the age. Well, why not put that in then? Mr. Book Publisher, you know that the original Greek manuscripts say end of the age. Why suddenly change it to the end of the world? Because drama sells. That's probably why. <laughs> so people read that and they think, oh, this, this is the second coming of Jesus. This is the end of the world. This hasn't happened yet. So every, and then they read the next few verses and the next few verses predict some alarming things, and then we think there's alarming things ahead. And so, let's just look on. Go to, let's go to the next one. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. There's a clue there. It is going to be very easy for somebody to confuse you with what Jesus is about to say, so be careful you are understanding it in its original context. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So people, oh my goodness, that's what Jesus has predicted is going to happen just before the end of the world. I know the original Greek says age, but my Bible says world in English, and so I'm going to stick to that. And this is what's going to happen. I was actually flicking through TV shows on Amazon Prime the other day, and I saw one called The End Times in the Words of Jesus. And they quoted this. They just ignored the verses before it and the verses after it, but they quoted this because if they had read the verses before and after it, it would have ruined their whole documentary. <laughs> so they ignored all of that, and what they did was they said, Many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. And then they showed you modern day people that claim to be the Messiah and have got a following around them. And then they, sh they showed you, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And then you saw video clips of the Iraq war and Afghanistan and all of that kind of stuff. And then it says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And it showed you, you know, like the breakup of the Soviet Union and little nations breaking away from big powers. And then it said there will be famines and earthquakes. And it showed you like modern day footage of a famine in Africa and an earthquake and, and a tsunami someplace and so on. All giving the impression that what Jesus was talking about was those things that we see on our television today. But, but there's a little problem with that. You could pick any time in history and find the wars, find famines, find earthquakes. Someplace in the world, find false Christs and, and cult leaders. You could do that. So how do we know that that is about, that was what Jesus was talking about, our day and age? Well, actually, he wasn't. If we read this in context, Jesus was not talking about this happening at the end of the world happening all over the world. Jesus was talking about it happening at the end of the old covenant age in one place, the region of Judea. And so what I want to do is I want to just um, show you, I'm going to show you a little um, movie trailer of how people can take those verses, rip them out of their context, and make them into a dramatic film about our day and age. Let's watch it. Hello? Hi, Mom. Chloe, welcome home. So is everything set for Dad's surprise party? Uh, he got called into work. Can I buy you a coffee? I'm waiting for someone. Uh. 
from my dad. Hi, sweetheart. Hey. Welcome aboard PanCon Flight 257 to London. Flight time today will be six hours and 30 minutes. I love you. People from all over this plane have simply vanished. Chris, let me in! Chris! Answers, and believe me, so do I, and I'll do my best to get them. I heard some doctors talking. It's not just here, it's all over the world. One of these days, the sky's gonna break. Chloe, are you okay? Yeah, but Mom and Raimi, they're both gone. One of these days, the mountains gonna fall into. <gasps> Irene knew this was coming. The way it happened. How could she know that? He took them to protect them from the darkest time in the history of this world. The God my mother talked about would never do something like this. We all have a right to know if we're gonna die. We're gonna die. Spoilers, no flaps, no elevators, and if I run this thing dry, no reverse thrust. I need some room. I just really need you to know how much I love you, no matter what happens. Dad? Looks like the end of the world. One of these days, the sky's gonna break, and everything will escape, and I'll know. It's always Nicolas Cage in these movies. Have you ever noticed that? There's either going to be a polar vortex or there's... And that is based on the words that Jesus said, but completely ripped out of context. Like, where did the pilot of the plane disappear to and all the babies in the nursery? Well, there's a verse where Jesus said, there'll be two in a field and one will be taken and one will be left. But if you read it in context, the disciples say, where will they be taken? To judgment, he says. You do not want to be taken. I can assure you of that if we look at the words of Jesus. Let's just look at this in context. I said that Jesus was speaking to um, his disciples and to his followers over three chapters, Matthew 23, 24, and 25. And what I want to do is I want you to imagine that this speaker here, that this speaker is a mountain, like not a big mountain like the Rocky Mountains, but like a hill. And on top of this hill, the city of Jerusalem is built. And in the center of the city of Jerusalem, the temple has been built. And the temple and the city were what served the, the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Covenant. People would come on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices to worship God at the temple there. But it was on a hill. In this side of the hill, there was a valley called Gehenna in Greek, or the Valley of Ben-Hinnon. It was like a landfill site where they dumped all their garbage over there, and it was burning in fire all the time. And in this side, there was another valley called the Kidron Valley, a nice valley. And you could leave Jerusalem, and you could go down the Kidron Valley and walk through the grass and trees and so on, and then you could climb up another hill here called the Mount of Olives. So this is the situation. So the Bible tells us that Jesus was in the temple in Jerusalem with his disciples. Can we put the next passage up, please? Whatever the next slide is. And so Jesus, the, the, so Jesus, um, uh, no, no, have I got another one after this? Yeah, this one. Okay, so Jesus is in Jerusalem in the temple, right? And he's talking about the religious leaders, and he says to them, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself don't enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. He's preaching about how the religious leaders had become judgmental and legalistic and, and were not showing compassion to people and had really closed the door of heaven instead of opening it. And he, so it doesn't start well, and it goes on worse and worse. 
Seven times he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then eventually, let's go on, he says this. Next one. He says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to Gehenna? I'll explain what that means in a moment. Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers, that's the apostles and so on. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. That was what, what Saul, who became the apostle Paul, did. We heard last week about him going from town to town to arrest Christians. And so upon you, who's he talking to? Can you tell me? The Pharisees. Is he talking to people in the 21st century here? No. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Next one, please. The next slide. Truly I tell you, so he's still in Jerusalem, in the temple, talking to the religious leaders, truly I tell you, all of this shall come upon 21st century North America. Is that what he said? Truly I tell you, all of this will come upon this generation. Oh, New York, New York, I'm going to judge you and destroy you. Is that what he says? What city is he talking to? Jerusalem. He predicts that terrible things are going to happen to Jerusalem. He doesn't want those things to happen. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is left desolate. Remember it said he was in the temple? When he's talking to the religious leaders and he's saying your house will be left desolate, he's not talking about their condo that they lived in. He's talking about the temple, the house of God. And he deliberately uses the word desolate because he's referring to a prophecy that the prophet Daniel gave hundreds of years previously when Daniel predicted that a foreign army would come to Jerusalem and would desolate the temple. So he's talking to the people in that day and age and he's talking about how Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies and the temple itself would be destroyed. Now let's read on. Next verse. Next, next slide. Jesus left the temple, right? And was walking away when his disciples, who were rather troubled by all of this, came to show him the amazing architecture in the temple. Like, surely you don't mean all this is going to go bye-bye, do you? To call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all of these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be torn down. So then they left, and they're walking through the Kidron Valley, I guess in complete shocked silence, because there's nothing said, until they get up the Mount of Olives, and on the Mount of Olives they sit down, and on the Mount of Olives they are looking directly at eye level at the city of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. And so he say, it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Oh, now we have it in context. When will this happen? When will what happen? When will the temple be destroyed? Well, Jesus already said it would happen to that generation, right? When will, and what will... And Jesus answered, watch that no one deceives you. And then Jesus began to give his prophecy about what was going to happen within one generation. 
But then what Jesus did was he wanted to make it clear, this is just going to be the end of the age. It is not going to be the end of the world. It is going to be the end of the old covenant age. There will be no more temple. There will be no more sacrifices. There will be no more priesthood. There will be no more law code. All of that is going to burn with fire and be obliterated. We will live under a new covenant where we don't live by a law code written on stone, but God comes to write His law on our hearts. He speaks to our conscience. We won't go to a temple made of stone. We are the temples of God, and His Spirit lives in us. We don't need to sacrifice animals. Jesus sacrificed Himself for all the sins of the world. We don't need to go to a priest. We will all be priests. We all have direct access to God now. This is a new covenant. This is the end of the old covenant age that he's predicting when all of this will be wiped out. And so he says, watch that no one deceives you because that will be the end of the age, but there's a lot of other things to happen, and then there will be a final return of Christ at the end of human history, but that's not what he's talking about here. What Jesus does over Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which obviously we cannot go into, but that's why Harold and me wrote this book, because we go verse by verse through the prophecy and explain everything. And Jesus lays out a three-part plan of what's going to happen. Can you put the chart up, please, my next, my next one? And this is what he predicts. Now, once you see this, once your eyes are open to see this, you will never be duped by doom and gloom end-time fanatics again. You might even want to take a photograph of this for future reference, because here is the prophecy of Jesus. Jesus predicted that within 40 years, he said within one generation, and in the Bible, a generation is usually regarded as 40 years. Do you remember the, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until the generation that had been slaves in Egypt had died, and a new generation would enter the promised land? So, within 40 years, Jesus said there was going to come a time of great tribulation for the people in Judea. Not we are waiting for a future tribulation over the whole world. He said it was in Judea. And he predicted what was going to happen. He said false prophets and false messiahs would arise in Judea. And we know from history that they did. In fact, Jesus was very specific. He even said in that prophecy, if somebody says to you the Messiah is out in the wilderness, don't believe it. And if they say to you he is in the inner chamber, don't believe it. We know from history that two of the false messiahs who rose up in Jerusalem after Jesus' time one of them went out into the wilderness and called people to go out there and form an army. They all get wiped out. And another one went into the inner chamber of the temple and sat in there as if he was God. Well, him and his followers got wiped out too. The Romans didn't tolerate all that stuff. So Jesus was very specific and his prophecy specifically came to pass. He then prophesied natural disasters like famines and earthquakes in the region of Judea and in the Mediterranean area. And that's exactly what happened. Over the next 40 years, there was terrible famines in Jerusalem. In the Bible, we see the Apostle Paul collecting offerings among the Gentile churches to send to the, the believers in Jerusalem so they wouldn't die in the famines. And um, we also see during that 40 years, seismic activity of earthquakes and volcanoes all around that place, culminating in 72 AD when um, Vesuvius erupted and destroyed Pompeii. 
So all of that happened within there. War and violence. He was talking about how the zealots would rise up and the Jews would rebel against the Romans. This nation would try to break away from that nation and how the Romans would respond by coming in. He tells us Jerusalem shall be surrounded by armies. They will have an eagle banner that they will put there for where the eagles are gathering. Jerusalem will be left as a carcass to be destroyed. And in it, he says, Jerusalem will be invaded and the temple will be destroyed. All of that will happen within 40 years. The key verse is, after he says all those things, in verse 36, he says, this generation will surely not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Then he tells us, but that's not the end of the world. Then there's going to be a long, long period of time. And he uses parables to talk about this long period of time. He talks about the parable of the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. And you know, they had, some of them had oil in their lamp and some of them didn't. And it, he says there, the bridegroom, the return of Christ, the bridegroom was delayed in his coming. He tells another parable, the parable of the talents, about how the master went away and said he would return, but he went away for a long time. He's telling us in these parables that after Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed and the old covenant passes away, there is going to be a long, long period of time when the gospel is going forth and being proclaimed, when the kingdom of God is advancing, and what is the job of Christians during that time? Well, we're, our job is to stay filled with the Spirit. Make sure we've got oil in our lamps. Make sure that our relationship with God is strong and growing and flourishing. Another thing we're supposed to do from the parable of the talents is we're supposed to discover and use our God-given gifts. That's why we're here. We're here to discover and use our God-given gifts. The meaning of life is discovering your gifts. The purpose of life is using your gifts. That's your life purpose. And so Jesus is saying that's important. And then he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats, which is all about the importance of serving other people with love and compassion, especially people who are, who are in a worse off situation than you. And then he says, after that long time, there will be final events. One day Christ will return and there will be the final resurrection and the final judgment, final because there will be no other judgment after that. It will be complete and full. The, the sheep and the goats goes into that. And that is the prophecy of Jesus. But here's what some people do. Some people take the prophecy of Jesus and they like push all of it off, all of it off into our future. Some of it's in our future, but they push it all off into our future. That's called futurism. Other people take all of the prophecies because they, 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 they realize that some of them have been fulfilled. So they take them all and they push them all off into our past. That's called preterism, past fulfillment. They push it all into the past. Other people take the prophecies and they try to stretch them out for 2,000 years. And they say, well, you know, maybe they've always been fulfilled. That's called historicism. They try to make them historical. Well, I just want you to know I'm not any ism. I want to look at every passage in the Bible and not decide in advance whether it's in the future or the past. I want to read it in its actual context and see what it says. Not buy into a system but buy into a relationship with God who speaks to me through the Bible like a living book that illuminates me, not just buy into a system. That is the prophecy of Jesus. 
All of that doom and gloom and false prophets and messiahs and great tribulation and all of that stuff that Jesus predicted, he was very clear that generation would not pass away before it came to pass. And if you read through Jesus' prophecy and you look at everything that he says would happen there, 36 verses of it, if you read through it and then you pick up a history book like the complete works of Flavius Josephus. I read these things so that you don't have to, okay? <laughs> you can thank me later for that. Josephus was a Jewish guy who was alive at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. He wasn't a Christian, but he was a Jewish guy that was alive at the time. Originally, he was on the side of the Jews, and then he realized things weren't going so well, so he changed sides to the Romans and became the official historian of what was happening, and he details everything that was going on in Jerusalem during the Roman siege, and the amazing thing is every single thing that Jesus predicted was fulfilled exactly to the letter within that 40-year period. Now, sometimes people are disappointed when they hear that. Well, well, all that stuff's been fulfilled. But I, I saw the Nicolas Cage movie, and I, I, I thought all that stuff was in our future. And it was kind of, it was a little bit scary, but it was kind of exciting and dramatic as well. And you've just taken it away from me. That's kind of, hey, look at it this way. We can pick up the Bible and read Jesus giving a prophecy. Then we can pick up a history book and read that prophecy being exactly fulfilled, exactly when Jesus said it would be by AD 70, within one generation, because he said it about AD 31 or 32. So there was only 40 years for it to be fulfilled. And we can stand astounded at the amazing accuracy of Scripture. And we can say, this is the Word of God. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Every word He said came to pass exactly how he said it would, exactly where he said it would, and exactly when he said it would. It strengthens your faith to know that this has been fulfilled. It confuses your faith to, to push you off into the future and hear all kinds of theories about it. Now, sometimes, you know, I talk about a lot of subjects, but one of the things I talk about an awful lot are things like discovering your life purpose, discovering your spiritual gifts, finding out God's plan for your life, having a spirit-filled life, you know, being filled with the Holy Spirit and serving God, and, and that God is a God of love, and He loves everyone, and we should love everyone. And, you know, why do I talk so much about those things? Because those are the things that Jesus said were important for the age that we are living in. Our job is to stay filled with the Spirit of God, to discover and use our God-given gifts, and to show love and compassion to the world around us. That's the important thing. The important thing isn't the mark of the beast and the number of the beast and this and that, and do, are you pre-trib and post? All of those things that Christians argue about, none of that is the important thing for this age. Those are the important things for, for this age. We can have peace of mind knowing that the things that Jesus predicted have been fulfilled. We have a job to do in this age, and whenever the right time comes, Jesus will return one day and, and make all things right once again. Isn't that much, much clearer than all of the confusion that goes around about this subject? That is what Jesus predicted. Now, I know people say, okay, that's great, but what about the book of Revelation? Revelation, strange. Do you know that Revelation says exactly the same thing? Put up the next slide, please. Will you put up the next one? Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The, word is, the actual Greek word is apocalypto. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. An apocalypse was a prophecy that was given in a certain language, the language of symbols. 
So when it says the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the word apocalypse actually means to unveil. It means to pull back the curtain of time and show you what's behind it. An apocalypse, to unveil, to pull back the curtain. The book of Revelation literally means an unveiling of the prophecy of Jesus Christ. But this time explained, not in plain speech, but in the language of symbols. What was the prophecy of Jesus Christ? The thing we've just gone through. The book of Revelation is the same prophecy that we see in Matthew 23, 24, and 25, but this time described in the language of well-known, not well-known to us, but well-known to them in their day and age, well-known prophetic symbols. And it has the same threefold plan. Next slide, please. Can you put the next one? Look at this. Revelation starts, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what would take place in the 21st century. Is that what it says? What must? It was written to people who were alive at the time about what must soon take place, just like Jesus' prophecy. How does the book of Revelation end? Next verse. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy because it's going to take 2,000 years before any of it happens. No, for the time is. This was a message to people living at that time. Next one, please. Next slide. Oh, yeah. What I'm sharing here, by the way, is, is not some new thing. This was the majority. This is this was the majority view. This was how you read the early church fathers, you read the scholars and saints of the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church, you read the Protestant reformers like John Calvin, John Knox, Martin Luther, you read the evangelical revivalists of the Great Awakening like John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. This was what they taught. The internet had not been invented, so everybody who can't get a job and is still living in their mother's basement didn't have time to make videos. <laughs> this is what has been taught for 2,000 years. All of this fear stuff is brand new, folks. Do I have a chart? The chart. Here we go. Revelation follows the exact same except it doesn't say within 40 years, it's within a few years, because now it was only a few years away. The Revelation chapter 1 to 19 predicts false teachers within the church, persecution from outside the church, wars and natural disasters, and the Romans destroying Jerusalem and the temple. Then it talks about a long period of time it's depicted as 1,000 years because in Jewish parlance, 1,000 was used the way we would say millions today. You know, oh, there was millions of people at the hockey game. No, there wasn't millions, but we know what you mean by that. A thousand just meant a lot. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord. It means all the cattle and all the hills belong to the Lord. And during this time, Satan is bound, restricted. He cannot deceive the nations. The gospel is going forth. The saints are reigning with Christ, seated in heavenly places. The book of Ephesians says that's right now. And it talks about two resurrections, a spiritual one where we are born again and come to faith in Christ. But one day there will be the final resurrection. And then it talks about final events, the return of Christ, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. You might want to take a picture of that. And next time you come across some strange interpretation of the book of Revelation, just get your photograph out on your phone and see how it fits in with that. Do you see what the Bible was saying? It's saying, it is predicting that so many events were going to take place in the past, and then there's going to be a long period of time. That's what we live in. We are able to read the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 23, 24, and 25, or the prophecy of Jesus in the book of Revelation in the language of symbols, and we are able to see where we live in the great plan of things. We live after 
the great tribulation in Judea and the persecution of the early Christians and uh, the destruction of the temple and the end of the old covenant age. We live after that. We live before the final return of Christ where everything will be summed up. But there's not, things are not going to get worse and worse until the return of Christ. They're going to get better and better. The apostle Paul says, Christ is seated on the throne of heaven and he must stay there until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Until the day comes when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Till the, that's a prophecy. There's another prophecy that says, till the day comes that you no longer have to say to your neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. Until the day comes when we, we melt our our weapons and turn them into farming implements because there's no enemies to fight anymore. It talks about that day coming. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon talking about this very thing and talking about how the kingdom will advance and advance and advance and advance until it's filled the earth and then Christ will return. He said this, I myself believe that Jesus will reign and every idol will be utterly abolished. For I would never insult the Holy Spirit by implying that he does not have the power to convert the entire world. There's a Baptist for you. <clears throat> he would roll in his grave if he heard some of this stuff being preached today. And Paul tells us that once every enemy is made a footstool for his feet, then Christ will return and defeat the last enemy, which is death. In other words, everyone's immortalized. And then he will hand the kingdom back to the Father. And then God shall be all and shall be in all. That's what we've got to look forward to. But we're in this middle stage. Next slide, please. What is our task? All of that stuff has been fulfilled in the past. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to fear it. You don't have to, if, if you're driving along the road one day and the moon looks a bit pink, you don't have to rush home to see if everybody's been raptured and disappeared and you've been left behind. You don't have to worry whether your iPhone is really the mark of the beast. I mean, they get it wrong. It was he the beast was Henry Kissinger, then he was Ronald Reagan, then he was uh, Osama bin Laden, or Saddam Hussein, or Barack Obama. He wasn't any of those people, and he's not Donald Trump or the Pope either. I've seen those videos as well. <laughs> All of that stuff has been fulfilled and has been confirmed by history, and we can have faith in the God who keeps his word. We know that one day he will return and we will see him face to face and everything in creation will be transformed. What a joyful day that will be. But we also know that in the meantime, our job is, number one, rest in the finished work of Christ. You're seated in heavenly places. You can earn your salvation. You can keep your salvation. You're saved by grace. You're kept by grace. And you're transformed by grace. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Number two, reign victoriously in life. It says in that prophecy in Revelation, then the saints shall reign in life as kings. And face problems, tackle the difficulties of life, overcome them, become stronger. Let, let problems that come your way just be an opportunity to prove your faith and to become victorious. Keep filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. Keep relating to God. Keep in an open relationship. Discover and use your God-given gifts. Invest your life in something worthwhile and compassionately help and bless other people. You want to be one of the Lord's sheep that he's the shepherd of. You don't want to be the old goat, the old goat legs is in charge of. So you want to make sure that you're compassionately. That's what, 
Now listen, that's what churches should be preaching. That's what we should be teaching. We should be teaching Christians to rest in God's grace, to overcome their difficulties by faith, to stay filled with the Spirit by having an open relationship with God where He is constantly at work in your life. Discover and use your God-given gifts and fulfill your life purpose. And wherever you go, be a blessing to other people, especially those in need. That's what we should be preaching. Some churches preach so much about the end times and fear. I was driving down the road one day and I drove past a church, little, little dinky building, and it was called the End Time Tabernacle. It made me so curious when I got home, I went on their website, which looked like it was made in the 1980s, and I went on their website and read all about their church, and I thought, man, you've taken the good news of Jesus Christ and turned it into a fear-filled cult. That's not what it's about. This is what it's about. So we're going to stand together, and we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together like we've been doing. And I hope that every bit of new information that we're getting each week is, go, is enlarging your vision, enlarging your vision, enlarging your vision, so that as we say this prayer, we are seeing more and more how God's kingdom, His reign, is growing in our lives and is going into the lives of others. Okay, are we ready, church? Let's say it together. Let's go. Beloved Father, who fills all realms, may you be honored in me. Let your divine rule come now. Let your will come true in all the universe, in the heavens and on earth. Give us all that we need for each day and untangle the knots of unforgiveness that bind us within as we also let go of the guilt of others. Let us not be lost in superficial things, but let us be free from that which keeps us from our true purpose. From you come all the strength to act and the song that beautifies all from age to age. Amen.